Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. Today we're here to discuss Lisa's new book, Prison Power, How Prison Influenced the Movement for Black Liberation. I just read the book. It's wonderful. I really, really liked your main argument, and I kind of want you to, for the listeners, discuss your main argument. Yeah, so the book looks at how prison shaped black liberation. And so I talk historically about how early black freedom fighters went into the prison as a space of social transformation that gave them rhetorical and political resources to help creatively fight uh, segregation and white supremacy. And as I look at a bunch of different case studies, I talk about how imprisonment then shifted and the state used the prison as a way of destroying the black freedom struggle. And I think the prison is really interesting because it became a central preoccupation of black liberation in thinking about the relationship between black people and capital, black people and the state, black people and the definitions of crime and punishment, black people and colonialism. And so for me, in thinking through what kinds of things have already been written about the civil rights or the black power movements, I'm really interested in the creative ways that black power thought about prison as a lens through which to understand oppression and power. In your book, you discuss the conflation of public protest with crime, Mm -hmm. like how institutionalized white supremacy makes protest about civil rights a crime. How do you think about what the Black Power Movement did and how they thought and what their vernacular was? How did they approach the fact that the government, institutions that they had to live under, were fundamentally opposed to their rights? Yeah. Well, one of the things I talk about in the book is that um, a red flag for understanding state abuse of power is when uh, the First Amendment is undermined in conjunction with restrictions on voting rights and other forms of political participation, especially for people of color. And so while I'm interested in thinking about how the prison created a radical space for personal and social transformation for black liberation activists, I'm also interested in concurrent discourses about white supremacy. And one of those was a series of vernacular and official discourses from white people about what law and order would look like. And so I look at how white state officials talked about civil rights activism as a threat to democracy, as a threat to law and order, which became a sort of racial dog whistle about maintaining white power, white privilege, and white economic interests. And so that law and order discourse is a fairly permanent feature of segregationist and white liberal discourse, quite frankly, from the 1950s all the way through the present moment. And I'm interested in the kinds of rhetorical interventions that black activists make in pushing back against characterizations of their civil protest as lawless or unwarranted, or untimely, or violent. And so I look at especially members of the Black Power Movement and think about what kinds of innovative linguistic choices they made to resist those characterizations of Black activism, especially as violent. Because, I mean, as Black activists, we're not running around shooting whitey. 
<laughs> they just fundamentally were not. They were responding to lynching and church burnings and political assassinations and political intimidation and poll taxes and those kinds of structures, especially in the South, but across the country, that existed to undermine black political participation. So in my mind, civil rights activism and, and black freedom discourse was about responding to white violence that was absolutely institutionalized in almost every facet of American political society during and after slavery. And so it, so black power especially is a reactionary discourse. Civil rights is a reactionary discourse to white violence that exists everywhere. You talk in your book about a particular kind of activism in the Black Panther Party, the Black Power Movement, about aggressive masculinity. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, the leaders of those movements kind of embodied. I really liked the positioning that you used with leaders being a bad, bad man or a moral bad man. I start with the early civil rights movement at the end of the 40s and through the 1950s in the American South, which is most classically epitomized in the direct resistance of the Montgomery Improvement Association and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference led by Martin Luther King. And of course, you know, everybody thinks about um, Montgomery and thinks about Rosa Parks. And I talk about how the initial steps around direct action in the South against desegregation were about moral suasion and about creating space to push back against white supremacy and segregationism from a moral place. And I think that there is still tremendous room to maneuver in that discourse to create conversations about political ethics that are centered on moral responsibility, whether that's from a place of religious responsibility or secular. But at the end of the day, that discourse, as it moved through the 1960s, began to fail. So even though the civil rights movement claimed the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act as tremendous political successes, they really didn't fundamentally alter how white supremacy operated in many spaces in the South. And for young black activists who were beaten and jailed and watched their comrades being killed by the citizens, councils, the Klan, the FBI, there was a push in 1966 for a much more radical position on what kinds of spaces that black activists should be occupying around white supremacy. And so the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and later the Black Panther Party in, in 1966 began creating new discourses, radical discourses that really fundamentally questioned the assumptions of civil rights organizing that focused on moral suasion and focused on institutional change and recognized that even with some of the major legislative successes during the Johnson administration, fundamentally black life in America was still constrained by institutional power that undermined their ability to create safe and healthy communities. You know, obviously I've been writing about the Black Panther Party and black power for almost 20 years and thinking about the kinds of political and rhetorical resources they invented to push black activists into a more confrontational posture with the state. And so the moral bad man and the bad bad man 
our notions about the kind of space that black men and women were willing to occupy, knowing that the state categorized them as insurgents, as pathologically black, as dangerous. And they recognized the way that stereotypes about black masculinity created fear in white people, and they capitalized on that. And so on the one hand, that that has been a very productive space for black masculinity, you know, since 1966, and has created a ton of aesthetic and rhetorical interventions into popular and political life, and created organizational responses to segregationist policy, especially in America's cities. On the other hand, because white people are afraid of black men, because of the propaganda that has existed in this country since the beginning about pathologizing black masculinity, I think that there were also pitfalls to that strategy. And so I look at how that kind of uh, occupation of racialized and gendered identity as as radical, aggressive, confrontational, pugilist black men also helped to justify crushing the black power movement as the FBI expanded its counterintelligence programs to assassinate and disrupt, you know, civil rights organizing in the U.S. I like how you're discussing the bad man and their approach to organizing and that they acted out in audacious ways yeah. to dramatize how unjust the white supremacy that they're living under is. And of course the irony is that we we totally allow this kind of masculine posture in all of these white spaces, whether it's the cowboy or it's the Rambo or it's the maverick top gun fighter pilot, we allow white men to take up the space, Clive and Bundy, where white men get to be in conflict with the state in these really confrontational, aggressive postures. But we deny that opportunity for black men, even though, you know, their oppression is real and is fundamentally premised on race. And so for me, I'm interested in how white mythology cultivates these figures of white masculine confrontation, like the mob, certainly the the glorification of the mob functions this way. How does that work to the exclusion of black men? Because it's not that the black men were taking up some different kind of gender posture. They were just occupying that nightmare space in the white imaginary where white white men and women fear that black people will take reprisal for centuries of massive oppression and violence. And that it's, that's just fundamentally the American story. I mean, we see that now with Donald Trump. The fact that he's rich and white legitimized his campaign. And he's able to, like, occupy this space of anger for a lot of people oh, yeah. in a way that I mean, Obama could not. Seeing the difference between a president like Obama, the way that that Obama campaigned on a platform of peace and hope and intellectualism versus Donald Trump's anger. The thing is, is that Donald Trump functions as a reflection of displaced white masculinized power for white men and women especially. And he reflects their ambivalence about gender and race in the 21st century back at them. And the only language they can use to take up that space really is anger, right? Because they have, they've decided that scientific inquiry has no value, that facts are not real. They want to live in a counterfactual space where they paint their own view of reality. So the only real emotional vector to take up space in the contemporary scene is through white male 
confrontational posture, which is exactly the kind of law and order rhetoric that was prevalent in the 50s and 60s, and certainly before then. But in the book, I'm predominantly interested in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so it makes total sense that as Donald Trump steals Ronald Reagan's slogan of Make America Great Again, what that means fundamentally is a nostalgia for a time prior to the civil rights movement, prior to the feminist movement, prior to the LGBTQ equality movement, when white men had total and complete unchecked political power and controlled all of the institutions. And the election of Donald Trump is a backlash against a black male president who symbolizes the institutionalization of black political participation and a backlash against white women as epitomized by Hillary Clinton at a time when white women have really benefited the most from affirmative action policies in the 1970s. So for me, the book is extremely timely because, you know, Donald Trump's chance to lock her up rearticulate the prison as a, as a punitive space for political reprisal. And so if you're watching sort of any of the backdoor dealings in Washington, along with the public commentary of Trump himself, so much of it is focused on punitive anti-black and brown policy and punitive anti-woman policy that it is impossible for me to understand the contemporary landscape without thinking about how the prison functions as a way for white people to justify the maintenance of their political position, their power, and their privilege. So in your book, you discuss the value of incarceration as a revolutionary potential and that imprisonment has a lot of... Creative potential. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And also that imprisonment is a very interesting viewpoint for people who, especially Black people, who experience punitive policy. So what's the experience of going to prison when they live under punitive policy? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a difference between the civil rights activists going into local county jails in the early part of the civil rights movement and how they used those temporary moments of imprisonment to catalyze their action, to build camaraderie, to hone political strategy, and what is happening now with mass incarceration. In the book, I talk about that early civil rights activism as a generative political and rhetorical resource. And as the Black power movement transitions in the late 1960s and early 1970s, the Johnson administration especially begins augmenting local police forces and giving block grants to expand imprisonment because of fears about crime, of especially urban crime. And so we see mass incarceration beginning in the way that it looks now as a corporate state space for really re- removing black people from the political and social economy of the United States. And so in the 70s, you have a rash of prison autobiographies, really starting with Malcolm X's autobiography, but peaking probably with George Jackson's Soledad brother and Angela Davis's autobiography, where imprisoned intellectuals are writing about how the prison It helps to expand white supremacy as a state and as a federal imperative. And white people start reading those things. 
And those books become national bestsellers. They stay on the you know New York Times bestseller list for years. And they become a lens through which white people understand imprisonment as an arm of excessive white supremacy as a policy tool. Today, though, the difference is, of course, in private privatized prisons and in torture camps and black sites domestically and internationally. And so the conclusion of the book is about the relationship between the war on terror, the Patriot Act, and international discourses of terrorism really helping to expand the federal government's privatization of prisons. And I think that there is probably very little rhetorical or political advantage to that for people of color who find themselves most frequently incarcerated in those kinds of spaces because there's no federal or state oversight. They're very difficult to get into. The media have a hard time penetrating those spaces, except in the case of whistleblowers who leak information or people who leave those prisons who do interviews. Private prisons have become a space to disappear. Black people who are who are not seen as either producers or consumers of material goods. And so they don't function as civil spaces that are productive at all. And they're extremely dangerous. I mean, anybody who's interested in democracy as an ideal of the United States really cannot, I think, in good conscience support incarceration and certainly not, you know, mass incarceration through private prisons. I mean, you discussed in your book about how the war on drugs and the war on terror are kind of evolutions of state blowback to civil rights. Yeah. So I wonder how these institutions have been able to preserve themselves, because in some ways the the Black Power movement was successful in exposing state violence against Black people, and yet all of those institutions persevere. Like the FBI was mm -hmm. directly opposed to major civil rights advancement. Mm -hmm. And that institution perseveres without a lot of scrutiny. And programs like the War on Drugs and the War on Terror allow institutions to continue subjugating people of color. For the white listeners of Lean Back, the takeaway, I think, for this conversation is the understanding that fundamentally the United States is built on the extermination of black people and their persistent removal from political spaces where they have any kind of structural power. Fundamentally, that's the case with the United States. And we know that because the 13th Amendment wrote slavery into the Constitution, right? Slavery is prohibited unless you're convicted of a crime. And so for the civil rights activists, they understood this extremely well because when they were imprisoned in penitentiaries in the South for voter registration drives, they went into those penitentiaries, were, which were built on the, the sites of former plantations. And most of those prisons were forced to turn a profit. So the inmates worked as they were slaves on former plantations, turning a profit for the states. And so as the activists went into and came out of those political spaces, it became very clear that slavery had not ended, right? That there were still institutional spaces in the United States that existed to undermine and destroy economic and political power for black people, especially but not limited to the American South. So, you know, it's very important for me to think through the ways in which the removal of black men, especially from political culture, justifies the erasure of welfare, the 
lack of investment into communities of color in terms of education or food welfare benefits or food stamps or economic infrastructure and allows the white middle class to excel and succeed at the expense of communities of color in the United States. That is a fundamental foundational aspect of power in the United States. And a failure to recognize that, I think, is just a completely destructive impulse for white America. Yeah, you talk in your book about how prisons are the new plantation. You detail a prison that actually was formerly an actual plantation. Yeah. Cummins in Arkansas is that way. Parchman in Mississippi. Part of the power of discourses that come from prison and the figures that you trace in your book who write from prison is that they are free from the lure of power. You know, like in prison, you are in some way powerless and writing from a state of powerlessness can in some way be a source of insight or a source yeah. of power. And you kind of trace that in your book. I mean, the thing about it is that whether it's white conservatives or white liberals that we're talking about, neither side really listen to people who are so economically and politically disenfranchised and mobilize on their behalf. And the thing about the prison writings that I look at in prison power is that they were able to transcend the prison walls and communicate with black and white readers alike about how the prison functions as a source of institutionalized segregation. And there's tremendous power in truth-telling. And the thing about it is, is that you, if you're in, intrinsically concerned with democracy, you actually have to listen to the analyses of race, gender, and class that are produced from the bottom up. So that means thinking about, you know, education from the perspectives of black and brown people who are not getting access to the quality kinds of public education that I think that they're probably entitled to in a country this rich that prides itself on democratic impulses. And you have to listen to people who are on food stamps to talk about what that experience is like to help us to care for people in our communities who who don't have access to formal economic and educational opportunities. And you have to listen to people who are in prison to understand how power operates there. And so for white people who um, think of themselves as progressives or for uh, white people, regardless of their political persuasion, that are interested in humanism or caretaking or strong and healthy communities, it is tremendously important to read the perspectives of those people who are not benefiting from the way in which democracy um, or kleptocracy in this contemporary moment structures political power. Their voices are important in understanding how we as white people benefit from structures that also oppress and destroy communities of color. There's an ethical responsibility for white people to read those narratives, to think about power from the bottom up, to fundamentally confront the way in which they benefit from prison as a structure of urban removal, the way that prisons fundamentally undermine black and brown political and economic efficacy. Discuss how black people are formally and have been excluded from, from the political sphere and that they've created their own vernacular to confront that. Mm-hmm. I really like how you discussed how the Black Power Movement and the 
the revolutionary movement for civil rights use their own vernacular to confront white supremacy. And so I'm curious how you think that vernacular helps them create some kind of inclusion into political discourse. So in Prison Power, I coined the term black power vernacular to talk about the kinds of linguistic and stylistic discourses produced by black power leaders and members to both undermine white supremacy and to shore up identifications within their organization among black people. So for me, the black power vernacular functions in this dual sense. On the one hand, it helps really channel anger and disappointment and rage and political action against the state in ways that sharpen their political analyses of disparate resources, the way that they they understand how white actors, political actors, undermine the self-sufficiency of black communities. On the other hand, I think that the black power vernacular is really important because it helps black people to identify with radical assessments of both white power and the failures of black activism um, and its limitations. And so the way that black power leaders talk about themselves as radical agents is really important. Um, and the way that they use invective and hyperbole and analogy and wit, all of those stylistic devices that freak out white people are actually doing really important rhetorical work in helping to radicalize uneducated or middle class black people to do the kinds of transformative social justice work in their communities that need to be done for those communities to survive in climates that are increasingly more hostile to black and brown bodies. So even though white people get freaked out when, say, Rat Brown says violence is as American as cherry pie, or he yells burn, baby, burn, as in talking about urban rebellion after the Watts uh, rebellion in 1965, that freaks out white people. But there is value in that, in seeing the destruction of property as a real transformative space to understand how neoliberal economics undermines communities of color. You do a really good job of highlighting how the literature coming out of prisons and the activists who were leaders of the Black Power Movement really highlight the experience of their imprisonment and how it relates to the culture of white supremacy and how there's an inherent distrust of people of color. There's a history of surveillance and brutality and the, the narrative that America is a culture of equality and justice. It fails for black people. And you do a really good job in your book oh, of highlighting you. that. Thank you. I want to, I want to know how you feel that, the history of unfair incarceration um, kind of parallels with the entire culture that, you know, preaches equality, but undervalues black lives entirely. 
Yeah, I mean, white people want to believe that that the United States has a culture of inclusion and equality, and it's just it's fundamentally not true. <laughs> it's just fundamentally not true, and there are no moments in the culture that bear that out across race, gender, and class at all. So for me, thinking about discourses of equality at best are optimistic discourses and ideals that have to be we have to strive towards, but they are not things that have been completed at all. Those are unfinished projects and they are projects that are really driven, uh, like I said, from the bottom up. It is not white people who are creating the paths towards equality. While that's true, it's also not the case that white people are entirely absent from those discourses of equality. And the book focuses, because of the time period, a lot on, on Lyndon Johnson. And I have a lot of ambivalence about Johnson. He has class politics that are more radical than basically anybody else in the Senate in his time there as majority leader. He has a racial perspective that is probably more progressive than really any of the segregationists in the American South with which he served in Congress. And he has a plan for the great society that is more inclusive and progressive than anybody in America probably at the time. And yet at the same time, you know, he is facilitating the FBI getting information about civil rights activism and disrupting it from within the White House. And so I think the LBJ is a really interesting space where black power used invective and hyperbole to really showcase the limits of white liberalism, uh, especially for black civil rights. And he's also a cautionary tale about white liberals who hype their progressivism at the expense of actual social transformation in black and brown communities. I have to say, I'm somewhat sympathetic most days to LBJ because the war in Vietnam sucked a ton of money out of the great society that would have actually, I think, been used to improve public education and create different kinds of standards for public welfare services for America's poorest, including rural whites in places like from where I'm from in Ohio or West Virginia or, or you know, Kentucky in Appalachia and in other rural white places. And I think his problem was getting sucked into Vietnam, probably really against what was his better judgment in terms of a domestic agenda that could have really been more inclusive than anything else we saw since FDR. But you mentioned in your book that in some ways the war in Vietnam legitimized black power activism yeah. because they saw an illegitimate war against the native peoples and they also saw state violence yeah. <laughs> against black people in the United States. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, there's some legitimacy to taking an aggressive stance against the state when they're clearly in the wrong. The optics on Vietnam <laughs> uh, in for most Americans was negative, you know? Like Yeah, certainly after 1968, <laughs> certainly yeah. after the Tet Offensive. I mean, it's true that black intellectuals use the resources at hand. And in that way, their inventive possibilities are extremely smart, thoughtful, philosophically astute ways of navigating 
discourses and counter discourses as they circulate around the globe. And I've published at length about the relationship between the black power movement and other third world movements, you know, in Cuba and Algeria and Vietnam and Bolivia, where post-colonial intellectuals were helping to circulate black power ideas and vice versa. And that became a very rich repository of resistance thought in the black power movement. And that that's useful except that ultimately it didn't really lead to black liberation because you had two presidents, LBJ and Johnson, who are who were so politically, in Johnson's case, insecure within his own party and in the nation, especially after the assassination of RFK, and Nixon, who was so paranoid and personally insecure that they used the FBI to undermine black activism because it undermined their political power in Washington. And that dynamic really is what crushed civil rights activism. And then as, you know, as those black leaders were assassinated and imprisoned for their uh, role in undermining the political legitimacy of the Vietnam War, then you have the introduction of the war on drugs once Reagan leaves California and becomes president. And that just dumps a ton of mostly black men into the prison system and removes them from the U.S. economy in ways that are totally devastating. And so the earlier draft of this book, the last chapter was about hip hop culture and about how hip hop culture emerges in California after the destruction of black power as a way of circulating counter discourses to the Reagan administration. And in also creating continuity between Reagan as governor of California, when he, you know, persecutes Angela Davis and undermines the black Panther party uh, and his presidency where the war on drugs became, you know, the major dog whistle for what has become mass incarceration now. Uh, you know, the only thing is, is that that mass incarceration had a blueprint that started with the 13th Amendment and was massively augmented during a Democratic presidency under LBJ. And so for scholars who are interested in mass incarceration, starting at Reagan is the wrong starting point. And moving from the 13th Amendment to the 80s just it just occludes a huge history of prison you know expansion that was directed especially at civil rights activism i like how you paint major players in the black power movement and in social activism about civil rights how you trace their history as like legitimate activists and how the state portrayed them as rabble rousers and threats and how the state took on forms of activism and translated it into civil disobedience. The war on drugs is an obvious evolution, criminalizing behavior that... At best is a public health concern. Right. Still, the police force in America seems to view black lives as expendable. And so I wonder how you think about current policy and current, the current approach to incarceration. And if you think that activism is still discipline in the same kind of way. Oh yeah. I mean, the reason that the black lives matter activists catalyzed around the slogan Black Lives Matter is because historically they actually happened. Black lives have not mattered in the United States and certainly not in the same way that white lives have mattered. 
And so <clears throat> the outgrowth of Black Lives Matter as a network and as a space for thinking about Black life and death has been a logical extension of protest politics that have grown out of <clears throat> a real decline in public activism, especially after the Clinton administration. <clears throat> and so, you know, in the, in the contemporary moment, it's very easy to see how conservatives would make watch lists and target black activists and brown activists for re social removal in ways that are extremely reminiscent of the 1960s. So I actually think that this contemporary political moment has a lot in common with the 60s. It's the same paranoia, the same racist dog whistles, the same economic arguments, the same kind of angry populism, the rise of segregationist rhetoric, the demonization of black political leaders, the conflation of Muslim and black activists, all of those things are things that we have seen for a long time. It's just that now that, you know, middle class white liberals are threatened and feel like their election was robbed, that they're paying attention again to the long history of American race politics. So I see the prison as a fairly stable space for the state to retain its power. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that nation states exist to preserve and augment their own political power at the expense of anybody who counters it, period. So it's, it shouldn't be surprising that the state, regardless of who is the president, is expanding and augmenting its power through the oppression of black and brown bodies because they're the most vulnerable. The question today is what are white liberals and progressives going to do about the fact that they may also be lumped in with the underclass of black and brown people who are seen as undesirable to a resurgent segregationist ideology. And for me, you know, the conversation is about what do we make of the fact that black and brown men and women are the ones that propelled Hillary Clinton to an almost three million vote margin over Donald Trump in the popular vote? Because white liberals need to understand that it's black voters that have been saving them at the national level. And, you know, white Democrats need to understand that if they want to continue to build anything in their party, they have got to recenter black and brown politics as, as the forefront of their political platform. And until they do that, they will keep losing at the national level and at the state level over and over and over again, because white liberals do not want to learn the lesson <laughs> that black and brown Democrats are the ones who are providing the talent and the intellectual resources and the flexible political strategy that is helping them, you know, win. And that's what Barack Obama understood it. They've been formally excluded from the political process for so long. Oh, yeah. They've developed organizing strategies and community building. Right, exactly. That are crucial now. Yes. <laughs> In a rapidly yeah. centralizing authoritarian political environment. I mean, they have the rhetorical interventions that would help to reshape power in the country if only white liberals would get out of their own way. This happened 50 years ago. Yeah, I know, you I know. know. I know. 50 years. It's barely a generation, you know? Yeah, it's but it's a fantasy two. of power. It's a fantasy of power that white liberals have where they're the only ones who can grant 
you know, equality and rights. And the whole critique of black power is that rights for black people exist as a priori. They are fundamentally part of humanism. I mean, it's a very enlightenment argument <laughs> that all people have human rights from birth. And the more that white liberals try to convince themselves that they get to decide who has rights and which rights are going to be augmented, the more they're going to continue to lose because they are not centering that bottom-up approach. They're not thinking about it from the position of the most vulnerable, who are the ones that are mobilizing for them despite their reservations about, you know, white liberals' commitment to actual political equality. So, you know, moving forward from this political moment, uh, it's just, it's incumbent upon white liberals and progressives to cede their privilege and allow black and brown people to take a more prominent space up in American political and civil li civic life. And when they fail to do that, they are no better or worse than conservative segregationists who want to formally deny access to political participation of people of color. They're the same. But it's happening right now. There is currently a formal denial of oh, yeah. political participation. Oh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Between the gerrymandering and the voter registration, voter suppression, that's, that's going to happen, especially in the red states. I mean, it's going to be generations before that political base will have access to the polls again, just as an electoral voice, which is just criminal. It is criminal to go back to voter IDs and poll taxes and citizenship tests and you know, fines and voter intimidation. And I mean, it, it's just absolutely criminal. But on the other hand, it's not like white liberals were doing all of this work when they were in power in the South or, you know, in the federal government to expand voter rights, except in places like Oregon, which are totally white, <laughs> right, where they have the most progressive automatic voter registration and, you know, mail-in ballots so you don't have to take off a day from work to go vote. And, you know, it's only in the most white enclaves where political participation is more democratized, which is ironic and is fundamentally the way that that equality, in air quotes, doesn't function in American life. I mean, this election has been disparaging in terms of even basic voter rights and how the election played out. Americans did not think that they live in an equal nation. Americans don't think that they live in an equal nation now. I mean, they say they're colorblind, but they don't actually think that they live in a place where people are equal. They say that as a way to get away with oppression but that's not how they feel actually right. so but that's like the evolution between the perception of progress for I white mean, liberals you mean right yeah but white liberals are racists <laughs> white liberals are racist just like white people are racists across the united states white people want to maintain their privilege and power and they'll do anything possible to talk about how equal they are and how self-righteous and dignant they are when other people's rights get taken away. But they're unwilling to fundamentally give up privilege so that other people can be equal. And that's the lesson of the 1960s, is that even though they want to talk this lip service about equality and opportunity for all, and politically, sometimes they push policies that help to create a more egalitarian society. When the authoritarianism is knocking at the door... White people generally do not stand up and with black people, and they don't allow black and brown people to create the messages politically that need to be created to move forward. So, you know, the lesson is that even when white liberals push policies that benefit people of color and that help to 
in some ways rectify the egregious distribution of resources towards white elites. They don't maintain that over time. And they don't center the experiences of black and brown people in ways that create a stronger base for themselves. And the major challenge today for, say, the Democratic Party that's very similar to the challenges of 1960s is that the Democratic Party, if they want to, you know, win electoral college votes, they do have to talk to rural white people who don't share values about equality with the black and brown citizens of the country that are going to fundamentally potentially determine what a new America looks like as America browns over the next 50 years. What happens when the majority of citizens of the United States are black and brown? What does that mean when you haven't had black and brown people who are driving electoral politics? That's when you see mass incarceration explode again, right? When you have a bunch of black and brown people who have not been brought into the political process and who have not had leadership positions, and whose ideas have not been circulating. And then you see a smaller and smaller and smaller white elite governing a black underclass that has been forced out of educational and economic opportunity. That is a recipe for disaster. I'm of the opinion that the U.S. is strongest when it has a healthy Democratic and a healthy Republican Party. And right now, both of them are anemic, and the Republicans are relying on this punitive ideology and just corporate cronyism. And the Democrats are scrambling for a plan B because they believed in their own fantasy of their candidate, despite the miscalculations that were potentially made in, in building electoral college support. And it just, for me, the best advice I can give to both parties is that they, if they want to continue as American institutions with any degree of integrity whatsoever, both of them need to incorporate black and brown intellectuals and interlocutors to help reshape American policy. Otherwise, we're going to slide into this authoritarian disaster zone and the whole myth of America will be exposed for the sham that it might be. But the thing about the book is that prison power is all about the way in which prisons are one extension of, of white supremacy as it's institutionalized by the state. The court, I look at the courts, I look at legal narratives, I look at prosecutorial defense, I look at a whole host of you know, rhetorical structures that exist to undermine black political efficacy. And so for me, there's going to be no other option but civil disobedience. And I'm sorry that that makes white people uncomfortable right, or that they feel like their privilege is threatened. But as we see this authoritarian kleptocracy unfold, it is incumbent upon white people with, with material resources to stand up with and be counted among black civil resistors if Democrats want to transform politics in a way that benefits all people. And if they don't, then their language about equality also is a sham. It's incumbent upon them to do so.